There's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of all of these founders that made money then funding their friends who are like them, who then fund their friends that are like them. And there's a compounding effect to all of that. And we need that for female underrepresented founders in so many different dimensions. You know, we need those underrepresented founders, those female founders to be making ungodly amounts of money so that they then themselves can go back and invest in, in, in people like them. I'm Emily Bellet, the founder of Vespot.com, a thriving community that financially empowers women, author of You're Not Broke, You're Pretty Rich, and host of The Wallet. Today, I'm speaking with Czech Warner, an early-stage VC and founder of venture capital fund Ada Ventures. Ada is a $50 million early-stage investment fund that supports overlooked and underrepresented tech founders. Having recognized the lack of diversity in the investment world, Czech also co-founded the nonprofit Diversity VC to help promote inclusion and eradicate affinity bias within the investment industry. Today on The Wallet, Czech gives us an introduction to venture capital, the role that VCs play in supporting early-stage startup founders, how a fund is built, and how founders can prepare for conversations with investors. We also talk about Czech's own layers of privilege that ultimately enabled her to also raise the fund. We discuss the positive knock-on effects that come with funding underrepresented groups and markets, and how we can get more money into their hands. Starting a business is hard, and there can be a lot of pressure on your personal finances, especially in the early days. Jack explains how Ada Venture supports founders financially and emotionally, and the work they do to make the investment space fairer and more inclusive for founders who are also parents. I'd also just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionB. PensionB has helped over 400,000 customers be pension confident. It enables savers to take control of their finances by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. With PensionB, you can manage your pension like you manage your bank account, check your real-time balance, see your projected retirement income, and set up contributions and withdrawals all from the palm of your hand. Plus, you'll get human support from your very own UK-based account manager, or as PensionB calls them, Big Keeper. You can sign up to Pension B today with the names of your old pension providers in just five minutes. And if you're self-employed, you can start a new pension from scratch. As always with investments, your capital is at risk. Please note that the information made available on this podcast is provided for educational purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. If you have any questions, you should seek advice from an independent financial advisor. Also, if you're investing money, make sure it's for the long term and you understand what you're investing in. Hi, Czech. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, I would love, love to uh, grab a coffee with you, but I think for the, for the time being, it's <laughs> it's quite good. It's so nice to have you on the wallet. So I'm a, I'm also a scout for Ada Ventures. So we're going to talk about VC investment today and also if you're an entrepreneur, how to raise funding. But can I just ask you if you could introduce yourself for people who, who don't know you and don't know what, what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So I am Czech. I'm the co-founder and partner of a venture capital fund called Ada Ventures, which is named after an amazing woman called Ada Lovelace, who is this incredible visionary. And we want to find the Adas of today. We want to find brilliant technical people who've been overlooked. And that's the whole philosophy of the fund at Ada. 
So we're trying to invest in overlooked founders and overlooked markets. It's a $50 million fund. And we have so far invested in 15 companies. And I'm also, aside from Ada Ventures, I'm also the co-founder of an organization called Diversity VC, which is a nonprofit all about promoting diversity and inclusion in venture capital and tech. And your, your background was in, uh, in tech and, and VC. I mean, how did you get into this world of investment and, and funding startups? Yes, yeah, super weird. Um, I came from the advertising industry. So I kind of knew nothing about finance. I didn't really know that much about tech. Uh, but I worked initially in a big ad agency and then I made a kind of career pivot into venture. And I was incredibly fortunate to join a fund that was just starting up at the time. So I learned a huge amount in the first couple of years that I spent in VC. And that's what kind of opened my eyes to, oh my goodness, this industry is so undiverse. It's so uninclusive. And yet it's so interesting and so many more people should be part of it. So that's what inspired coming up with Diversity VC and has led in a way to Aid Ventures and the journey that I'm on now. Well, it's a big journey yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know from this to raising a fund of like 50 million uh five zero that's that's amazing what were for you the um the initial challenges raising the fund and, and preparing to raise especially when it's your first fund i guess it's quite hard yeah absolutely i mean the challenges initially were just even starting in the industry and kind of becoming confident that i could do it really, that I was meant to be here and overcoming that imposter syndrome, which I think a lot of people struggle with, but not having come from investment banking or consulting, I was very aware of sort of not having that grounding of you know, financial analysis skills. So I think over time, I came to understand that actually what I could offer founders was help with go-to-market, strategic positioning, branding, sales, all of these things that are actually really important and actually that many people that do come from investment banking and consulting backgrounds may not know so much about. So that was kind of the first thing that was a challenge. And then in terms of raising our own fund, there were loads of challenges to that. You know, I think we came out with a pretty different strategy, you know, talking about investing in places that other people weren't looking in. Um, some of the people that we spoke to said, well, hang on, aren't you just investing in really bad companies? Because surely other VCs will find the, the best companies. Why don't you invest in the ones that they also are looking at? So we had to kind of really convince people that there was all this opportunity that was being left out. And so many of those investors also thought, well, where's the data? Where's the evidence that shows that, for example, women can make money or Black entrepreneurs make the best founding teams. And because we don't have the historical data sets, we, we actually really struggled to make that case with evidence. So that was, you know, another challenge. And then kind of lots of practical things as well, like you have to have a lot of money, which I think we're going to talk about a lot in this podcast um, to raise a venture fund. I took basically 18 months where I wasn't earning money. I was doing a little bit of consulting, but um, that was really tough. And then you know, resilience of getting rejected. We got, you know, hundreds of no's. And then, um, you know, also convincing people about our partnership. So I, I was, you know, I'm doing the fund with my former boss and convincing people that we were a good team to back. 
lots and lots of different things were were tough. But thank goodness, after about 17 months of fundraising, we eventually closed the fund and um, started investing, which is amazing. And you're here. It's fantastic. And I, I, I can relate to that. I worked in, you know, on the other side. So <laughs> investment banking and, and private equity, and it's, it can be such a small world. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, being, being part of it or not being part of it actually can be a big barrier when you want to work in the space. But when do you actually start? You know, if you didn't start just straight after school, like coming from the top schools and then, you know, joining this investment banking graduate program, then it can be quite hard to get in the space. Yeah. And I remember speaking to lots of recruiters who said to me, you know, if you don't have those backgrounds, I'm just not going to introduce you to funds. And It was just so hard. And there was this kind of cold start problem of like, how do I ever get any experience in order that I can show that I can do this? Um, and that's, you know, again, maybe we'll talk about this, but that's what led us to creating Future VC, which is this internship program, which gives people a chance to start and work in a fund for two months and get paid for doing that and then get experience, which they can then build to trade into hopefully getting a job full time in VC. So how did you find these, uh, these interns? Like who are the, the profiles? There's no profile. That's the, the whole nice. point is that we have people of all ages. We have people who study dentistry. We have people who are kind of artists, you know, who, who want to explore venture capital. And, you know, I really firmly believe that the industry will be better if we have people who come from all sorts of different perspectives. And so what we do is say that you need to have one year of work experience. That's it. And otherwise anyone can apply and We have had an incredible response. We've had you know, thousands of applications over the last three years for Future BC. And we have about 20 people who work in the industry now, which is just so cool. And, and actually, I had a really funny experience with Ada where I was talking to a potential investor in our fund and um, trying to pitch him the fund. And he said, the reason I have my job is because of Future VC, because wow. I got my job through Future VC and You know, that was um, you know, how he got to that position. So that was a cool moment of kind of circularity, which was, yeah. which was great. I'm not, he didn't invest yet in the funds, so <laughs> we, should, we will see. But <laughs> <laughs> You let me know. But if we just take a step back for, for people who don't really know how VC work, can you tell me how you build a VC fund and who are your, your investors? Yeah, so first of all, you have to come up with a strategy and you have to convince people that your strategy is going to generate fantastic financial returns because the problem with VC as it relates to perhaps equity investing is that VC, you, you lock up your money for about 10 years. So you have to show that you can make kind of outsized returns that makes up for the fact that you can't get access to your money for 10 years. So once you've got your strategy, You then you know, go around and, and talk to lots and lots of different investors that could be pension funds, it could be university endowments, it could be family offices, and you convince them, you know, ideally to invest money in your fund. And the way that VCs get paid is in sort of two ways. The first is that they charge about a 2% fee, an annual fee on the total amount of the fund. And then the second part is that the VC gets paid in terms of the profit that they make. So when they've returned the money back to investors, the profit over and above that, 80% of that then goes back to the investors, but 20% of that goes to the team of the VC. And that's called carried interest. 
And that's uh, really how VCs, especially VCs that have small funds, really make money because the 2% fee kind of basically covers the kind of basic expenses of, of running the business. But the carried interest is where, you know, if you do well in the fund, yeah. you know, you can make money. And I mean, VC is considered much more risky than, of course, uh, you know, investing in the stock market that maybe we look at, you know, private equity and then and then VC. Can you explain the, the relationship with, you know, risk and, and reward and, and maybe why people who don't have like any investing experience and maybe who don't even have a pension <laughs> shouldn't necessarily go to, you know, investing in startups or like picking startups themselves? Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I think this term kind of risk gets bandied around quite a lot and often people get put off from VC. And I don't think that that's necessarily right because I actually think if you invest in a diversified portfolio where you've got a broad enough exposure to enough companies then everybody should have access to an exposure to early stage technology because technology as an asset class is amazing because it's this leverage that you get from technology which means that you can create a company and you can scale it globally and within you know five years ten years you can reach you know, huge valuations as we've seen with the likes of you know, Apple and Google and Facebook that were all venture funded. Yeah, so the, the tech markets have driven so much um, gain for investors that were involved in them. And I think it is a shame that actually the everyday investor, many of my friends don't have any exposure to that, except perhaps they might have a bit of some of the tech stocks in an ETF, for example. Yeah. Um, so I think you're right to say, Investing in individual companies is very high risk in the very early stage, but investing in a fund or investing in a group of companies and doing a properly diversified strategy is a great way to understand more about tech, but also you know, make money. Um, and the reason that investors invest in technology, particularly those that have a long-term horizon, is because the upside that you can get by investing in The, the top, you know, 50% of funds is better than what you can get in just investing in more liquid asset classes. You know, as a retail investor, if anyone wants to get involved, maybe they can invest directly in ADA. But what would be the other options maybe on, on the market to invest and to start building this portfolio, whereas it's, you know, maybe a portion of your bigger portfolio or something you do on the side, how you get access to these like private markets? Yeah, So not investment advice, but I think, you know, consider how much you have in total and um, look at your sort of overall asset group. And, and, and I would think about a small proportion of that that you can kind of put aside. It's money that you're prepared to, to lose you know, if something went really catastrophically yeah. wrong. But then I would look at kind of crowdfunding platforms and potentially um, using taking advantage of EIS and SEIS, which is, you know, such a great structure that we have in the UK that means you get tax relief. And, you know, investing in probably, you know, at least sort of 20 to 30 companies that are very early stage so that you give yourself the opportunity to get enough exposure. So you're not just putting all your eggs in one basket. And then ideally, you know, one or two of those companies will do exceptionally well. And You know, if you have more money in the future, you can start to build your position, build your ownership in that company that you invested in that does look like it's doing well. And as you start to get more understanding of 
perhaps the, the thesis that you're pursuing in terms of which area of technology you know you have most expertise in, then you can start sourcing deal flow from other places like angel investors. Alma Angels is an amazing yeah. uh, angel group. Um, the Angel Investing School, which is a great way to learn more about angel investing. So that's how I would suggest you know starting out. And even if you're just investing sort of fifty pounds in a crowdfunding company i think it's really interesting learning yeah it's, it's such a fascinating space and, and you feel you're part of you know the journey of this company especially when you back very early stage founders so you know great great tips of course not investment advice but uh, <laughs> but we, we all know that you talked about you know when launching ada that you need money to launch a VC fund and you wrote this really cool blog post uh, I will add it in the in the show notes and you talk about the different layers of privilege and that you as a founder of a VC fund you actually need yeah personal funds to invest to prove that you know you believe in your investment strategy and stuff how did you manage this process and, and find the money to do that yeah it's really the reason I wrote that post is because I really want this not to be the case for people who want to start funds after me. Yeah. You know, I'm a white cis straight woman who went to private school, who grew up in London, who went to Oxbridge. Um, and yes, you know, I don't have a traditional career background necessarily for venture, but in kind of every other way, I'm ticking the boxes. Yeah. Ticking, exactly, ticking the boxes. And so that, you know, was a big factor, you know, being familiar to the investors that were looking to invest in us, I think really helped because they are taking a lot of risks. So the, the more they feel that they can kind of de-risk and that's often through familiarity and um, affinity bias, uh, the more comfortable they are. Um, my partner is a white man. Um, my partner is also very similar to me in many ways and that he's straight and he's also came from a privileged background. And I think, you know, related to that, having the money and having also the safety net to do this. So what happens in a VC fund is that investors want to see that you are putting your money where your mouth is in terms of putting skin in the game, putting cash of your own alongside them. And that's called in venture a GP commit. And typically that's 1% of the fund. So we were raising a 30 million pound fund. That's 300,000 pounds. You know, it's a huge amount of money. And that's just not even including all of the money we then had to spend in actually buying flights to go and uh, fly out to see investors, spending money on lawyers, getting SEA regulated. It cost a huge amount the reason I could do that is because I had really supportive parents. I was able to work for my parents' company for a bit, do some consulting. I was able to move back home to live with them. I was able to, you know, draw on people that could, you know, potentially lend me money in the situation where I didn't have money and I fell on those hard times. So I think what you know, is more universal, not just about venture funds, but also about entrepreneurship is that we have to think about who has the opportunity to take risk and who has the safety net to take risk. And so many people don't, don't have that. Um, and so that's part of what we're trying to do with Ada is actually make it possible for founders that don't come from that massive amount of privilege to become entrepreneurs. Yeah. I was reading a tweet that you retweeted from Cindy Gallup about 
you know, sort of the loop of, you know, big tech entrepreneurs. And she was talking about the, you know, the PayPal mafia. So where all these PayPal guys went to do like different things, but they, you know, all had a lot of money coming from basically white men. And that's exactly what you're trying to not reverse, but you're trying to tackle with Ada. It's getting more money into the hands of, you know, female founders, underrepresented founders that then will go and create amazing companies that then will make money and then will start investing in other businesses. So how do we start this new cycle of, you know, fresh money in, into the hands of, you know, female founders and, and yeah, underrepresented black founders and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love Cindy and I'm actually working on a project with her on this, which is incredibly ambitious, as you can probably imagine. We can't talk about it right now, but I'm sure it will all become a bit more public at some point. But it's absolutely true that there's this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of all of these founders that made money then funding their friends who are like them, who then fund their friends that are like them. And there's a compounding effect to all of that. And we need that for female underrepresented founders in so many different dimensions. And so, yeah, absolutely. That's what we're trying to do with Ada and not just with the founders that we invest in, but with our scouting community and giving them the opportunity to participate in the equity upside of companies that do well. And then with the angels that we've also given some capital, we've given £250,000 of the fund for them to invest in checks themselves, and they make 100% of the profit on the checks that they write. So, you know, I think that that's one way that we can do it. But more generally, we need people to be, you know, we need those underrepresented founders, those female founders to be making ungodly amounts of money so that they then themselves can go back and invest in, in, in people like them. You know, we also need the PayPal mafia to do the same thing, by the yeah. way. I don't think that this is a case of you can only fund a female or underrepresented founder if you are female or underrepresented yourself. But I think there is a reality to the fact that that affinity bias does make a difference. And there are some problems that are very well understood to women or to underrepresented groups, and it just do not resonate as much with other groups. So it's quite exciting because I'm starting to see more of this happening, more of this community uh, coming together, helping each other. And there's one that I'm part of, which is called Transact, which is a community of female fund managers. And there's you know, 200 plus people from all over the world, Mexico, Pakistan, US, Canada, Europe. And there are now lots of subgroups of that group as well, including one which is called Transact Stock Pickers. And it's fascinating because these women are so interesting. They're running their own funds. They're top of their game. They're very plugged into the financial markets. And they're giving sort of tips, you know, and saying, I'm buying this, I'm buying that. And I'm learning a lot from that. And I think that that's something that I'd love to see more of my friends doing is kind of sharing more about, you know, what they're investing in and why and helping each other kind of get up to speed. Yeah, and, and make sure their money goes into the right pocket or supports the project they want. I think it's the same also with pensions. Like, you know, people have been very passively putting money into their pensions and it's now investing in, in things that, you know, fossil fuels and they're like, wow, where, where is my money? We'll talk about, you know, raising funding. But before that, you, you just published uh, with Diversity VC, a parental leave guide for VCs. 
that that's quite a big topic. I mean, I'm a founder, solo founder. I have three kids. <laughs> so this topic of, you know, being a parent and founder, but I guess it's the same for you working in VC, being a partner, and maybe you want to have children one day. As women, that's such a big challenge. Like, you know, there's no, you know, financial security and you can miss out a lot during these, these years. So what are some ideas and, and thoughts around, you know, tackling this parental leave and, and giving a bit more support to women working yeah, on the in, in the investment industry, but also maybe female founders? Yeah, absolutely. It's something that's on my mind a lot. You know, I'm 31. I would like to have a family. And as I've been thinking about it over the last year, I have realized how rare Unfortunately, my situation is, which is being kind of a founder of a fund, having raised a first fund, being in my early 30s, thinking about having kids. And luckily, there are a couple of women who have actually been in that situation. And so I've been really fortunate to talk to them about it and just have really frank conversations. And it's not just the having children point, it's everything around that. It's, you know, what if you have problems with conceiving? What if you yeah. are a same-sex couple that's thinking of adopting? What if you have a miscarriage? You know, all of these things that are such big issues and, and things that people go through that at the moment are just completely under-discussed and nobody is talking about them. No. And it's just, I think until people who are leaders in this space, and I think I'm, for better or worse, venture funds and partners in venture funds are kind of visible and they they do tend to be leaders because they're investing in those companies. Until we talk about it, I don't think anything's going to change. So I wrote a blog post to kind of coordinate with this um, parental leave guide that we published about my own thinking and just sharing that really openly. Like, look, I want to have kids. I have been thinking about this probably for the last five, six years. And in fact, I had a conversation with Matt when I first joined Venture, who's my partner um, and then was previously my boss. And I said, you and I have completely different timelines. Like I need to be a partner by the time I'm 30 because I need that security if I want to have kids you know, in the next couple of years after that. And it completely blew his mind. And he'd never thought about it like that. And he'd never considered what that experience was like. Um, and I think it's been really good for him because he has kind of completely changed his mindset and you know wanting to support women in our portfolio in our team me you know to make that as successful as possible so you know there was a practical point i remember when we were incorporating the fund and the partnership where there was a clause that said if you spend more than 3 months out of the fund not working on the fund full time you default on the fund and it gets taken away from you so i had to have a conversation with our lawyers saying, look, you know, what about parental leave? You know, that wasn't factored in. And they then had to write that in to the partnership agreement. So it's just the whole system is not set up to understand women and men going through parenting and wanting to be really involved with their kids. And I think, you know, a few things that would be really good. The majority of VC partners are men still at the moment. And I think that they need to take a real stance on this and take yep. proper amounts of parental leave and make it equal so it doesn't penalize women. Um, I think people need to really consider how to better support founders in their portfolio who want to be involved as parents. 
or who are having other problems and difficulties and how to have that dialogue. And, you know, I think we also just need to be more realistic about expectations on everyone to say, actually, if you have a family and you have a business, like that, there will need to be some give and take. And, and that's okay. Just pretending that you can just kind of do it all and sort of act like nothing's changed is, is not going to set anyone up for success. No. And uh, very recently, we've seen actually a, a partner in a VC fund stepping in and helping one of her, you know, portfolios company's founder who just had a baby. I mean, we're talking about yeah motherhood here, but she wanted to take a maternity leave and the VC said, okay, I'm just going to do your job for, you know, a few, a few months time. How does that work? That's amazing. I love that. I think it was just so good what she did because she did this whole Twitter thread about it and she dressed up as a handmaid as well, which was quite weird, <laughs> but also quite funny. Look, I think she's just, facing it and, and acknowledging it and normalizing it actually. And just yeah. saying, you know, this is going to be difficult for a solo female founder to go through, but she's going the extra mile. And as a VC saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to step in and I'm going to help you run your company. And it, it was just, it was just incredible to see. And I, I think I tweeted it saying, like, you know, this is the, one of the few times that VCs actually added value to a company. Um, <laughs> so I think it's about, you know, actually living the values and not just talking about we're supportive. But that's a great example of doing something incredibly tangible. And not only that, but she also put together a whole lot of videos that were from lots of different people. Yeah, founders so cool. talking yeah. about, look, pregnancy is not a PR crisis. It's not a crisis. It's, it's totally normal. It's, it's great. It's something to be celebrated and it's going to be fine. Take some time off like a little bit and, and yeah, enjoy like, yeah, these early month or early weeks. If we now talk about money, so you talked about, you know, <laughs> putting a lot of money into your business, but more generally, what is money for you? I mean, that's a question I ask all my guests on the wallet. And, you know, I, I wanted to know, you know, what was money in your, in your life? Yeah. So money for me means freedom. It means agency and having a, a say over what I do and where I spend my time and who I spend it with. And I feel incredibly fortunate to be in a position to be able to access that agency because so few people do. I think money is also an opportunity. It's an opportunity to realize a vision which could be completely transformational and have massive impact. And that's why I love the fact that I'm in a position with Ada where I get to invest money that is potentially life-changing to the founders that we invest in. You know, if they have an idea that could potentially change the world, they get to try it. And that is just incredibly cool to be, um, to be able to do. So for me, I'm not, you know, hugely extravagant. I don't like clothes or designer stuff particularly, but um, you know, I, I do want to make a huge amount of money because I want to use that to scale that mission and, you know, I think that one way to do that is through having, having the money. Yeah, I love it. Now, 
from a founder's perspective, money can be quite a difficult subject because very often founders sacrifice quite a lot to build their businesses. Usually they put all their savings, their family savings into their businesses because they're so passionate and, and they really believe in what they're doing. Uh, and it shows like some, some sort of commitment. But then what happens when, you know, you raise money, you will start, you know, paying yourself. But it's trying to make sure as a founder, you're also financially secure because it can take a long time to get to an exit and you may actually never get there and you may build a business and then a second business. So how do you approach this subject of, you know, finances, personal finances uh, with your with your portfolio companies? Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think both Matt and I, despite being pretty fortunate in many ways, have felt that financial anxiety and just have felt how much impact that has, particularly on mental health. Just always, always worrying about it is just a terrible drain. So we, we really don't want our founders to be in that situation. So we, of course, monitor what they're being paid. We make sure that they get pay rises regularly when there are sort of milestones that are hit and when the company can afford that. We also take Quite a bit of time before we invest to understand what are their family circumstances, what are the pressures that they're under, and particularly because you know our, our strategy is about investing in overlooked founders. Many of those founders won't come from money themselves. Um, they won't have savings, or yeah, yeah, they may not. Um, so we, you know, want to make sure that they will feel like they can carry on in the business because the worst thing would be if they felt that they had to go and get a kind of stable, secure job and miss out on the opportunity to make huge upside because they couldn't cover kind of basic expenses. So we've had situations with founders when we've you know paid them re really quite a lot so that they can cover student loans um, and understand that circumstance or they've had you know, families of young kids or we've had, I think, founders take director's loans out to cover yeah. new specific situations. And I think that's all good. And I think as a founder, what's great is that you are actually talking about money right up front with VCs. You're negotiating your equity position, you're negotiating valuation. So really, it should be a topic that people feel comfortable talking about. And I think that's not the case in many other industries where people don't discuss their salaries. It's kind of seems a bit of a dirty word. Like yeah. in VC, how much you're making and how much you're being paid and how ambitious you are and how much money you want is kind of all stuff we want to know about. So I think it's it's up to both us as a VCs to to have that conversation, but it's also good if you're a founder, like it's always a good point to raise. Yeah, but it's it's great to hear you're doing that at Ada because I've heard it's not necessarily the case with all VCs and and sometimes founders maybe struggle to have this conversation and they can be, you know, maybe a bit worried of opening up the conversation if they've already raised money and they're like, you know, I need to increase my salary for, for this reason. So it's keeping this, I guess, this conversation open with and, and work as a team with your VC. And I guess that's what you're doing at Ada. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, use your other founders in the community, ask other founders what they're paid, you know, benchmark it against other people because, that's your biggest resource and strength is is actually people like you in the same position. Um, and, and VCs tend to be generally pretty practical. And what they don't want is to put you in a situation where you feel that you're not able to operate because you're so stressed and worried about money. Yeah, you need your founders. <laughs> yeah. So now if, you know, anyone listening wants to raise money, they have their startup, 
at which point should you consider raising money? I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, bootstrapping. It's not going to work for everyone, as, as we said, especially if you don't have any savings. But, you know, for certain products or services, you need to raise money. You need to raise money quickly. So when do you think is the best time to raise money and how you can prepare to have this conversation with investors? Yeah, I think it's really important. The first point you mentioned, which is VC can sometimes feel like the glamorous end of the rainbow for everyone and everyone should do VC and get a TechCrunch headline, but it's not the case at all. And for so many businesses, it, it isn't right. And I think it's, you know, part of the reason why people become founders is because they want freedom, they want autonomy, they want agency, they want control of their own destiny. And the thing about VC is that VC puts a lot of, you know, control provisions, permissions that you need to get. You have to do reporting, monthly board meetings. It kind of feels like a job for a lot of founders. And I think they don't want that, which is incredibly fair. So I think it's really, really important to understand what the whole picture is of raising VC and what the, the pros and cons are. Only then would I suggest you, if you decide that, yes, you do want to raise VC, factoring all that in, think about, okay, do I have a proposition that has the potential to scale rapidly? Because what VCs care about more than anything is growth. So it may not be that you have it right now. It may not be that you even have a tech product built or, or anything, but you have to be able to map out in your mind, how are you going to get from zero to hundred million in revenue? And, and, you know, you'll have some assumptions within, within that, and you'll have some optimism within that, you know, what if everything went right, but you do have to be able to tell that story. So once you've got that um, story nailed down, I think what you can do is speak to other founders, you know, hear other pitches, understand how they did it, if they have raised money, get introductions to their investors, and you know, really build relationships that are going to put you in a position where you have as much information as possible. Because what happens is that VCs tend to see so many companies, they've got so much more information than you, and you've just got your one situation to look at. So try to kind of balance that out by getting as much information um, so that there's not that asymmetry between you and the VC or the angel. And uh, can you talk about, maybe just to give us some examples of, of recent transactions you, you've done, and if you take maybe one or two, and, and what was the process from, you know, maybe receiving the pitch or the, the first deck or the intro from maybe a scout, because you have like, you know, great community of scouts, to actually investing money and, and yeah, how long, how long does it take? Yeah. Um, I can talk about a couple of businesses. Um, one of them is a company that we have invested in called Spill, which is a mental health company which helps companies look after their employees and gives them access to both video therapy on demand, but also a, a bunch of other products as well to support their mental health. So that was introduced to us by somebody that we used to work with, who is an advisor to spill through a fund that, that had already invested in the company, which is Seedcamp. And, and that um, person was Devin Hunt. And he sent me an email and said, look, I think this company would be a really good fit for your thesis. And so I had a first call with Calvin, the founder, which is a short you know, half an hour call. And I realized very quickly that this was a really special opportunity, very special founder. And so I immediately, I think that day said, to my partner, you've got to do the next call with him. And that's typically how we work. And so Matt did that call, I think either later that day or the, the following day. And within two weeks, we had offered 
him a term sheet to lead his round. So that was a very unusual situation because that did happen very quickly, partly because it was a competitive situation, but also because the founder themselves, Calvin, was incredibly organized about his whole materials. Everything was ready to go. So it was much easier for us to move through that process quickly. On the other end of the scale, we invested in a beauty business, which we haven't yet announced, but that was introduced to us by a scout. And we spent two years getting to know them. Wow. And we you know, came close to investing at one point, and then they decided actually to, to come back and change some of the business. And they came back to us. And eventually, early this year, we, we did lead their round and they raised an amazing round with lots of great funds. So it can be really, really different. But I think what makes for a great relationship is when there's like a mutual interest on both sides and also communication and just keeping in touch with people, even if it's not the right fit right now, don't get discouraged. Just just keep them on the radar. And if you can show that you're making great progress, then those no's can sometimes turn into yeses. And can you give me some some reasons of why you didn't invest in, in some companies? Maybe it's an industry that, you know, you're not focusing on. Maybe it's the size of the company. Maybe it's, you know, the, the founder or the team. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of practical, boring things that mean we can't invest. So stage of company, we just invest at very early stages, so pre-seed and seed. UK company, we need it to be UK. We don't reinvest really in sort of direct-to-consumer businesses, typically, unless there's a technology angle. So all of those things are kind of hygiene factors, I suppose. But I think more interestingly, we probably sort of the main reason we don't invest in companies is because of teams, because we don't feel that either the team is aligned with each other and they don't have the kind of same vision of where they want to take the business. Or if we didn't feel that that founder or that, or that team really had that ambition and the scale of vision that we really need to see as a investor. And then, you know, there are some areas that we just wouldn't invest in if we felt that there was a risk that that could, you know, contribute to increasing inequality, for example, or poor mental health. So there are some, you know, some areas that we really wouldn't want to invest in. So I have three uh, quick fire questions. The first one is, what is the best financial decision you've ever made? I think it's got to be moving from advertising to venture capital. Just the increase in earning potential, the access to the, the people that I met in terms of the opportunity to get involved in equity investment was huge. So that was definitely a good call. And the worst decision? I think it's actually the things I haven't done rather than the ones I have um, in that, you know, I've missed out on investing in so many companies that are now hugely <laughs> successful, like Hopin, we didn't invest in. Many, many companies that are worth billions now. My husband invested in Bitcoin when it was $30 and we should have invested more. But yeah, and I, I've also been scammed a couple of times um, out of money. Like when I was, I think I was about 15 I in Berlin, I got conned on the street out of money. And I think, you know, those things really stay with you. <laughs> and what are the things you spend the most money on at the moment? So I, I love books. I love reading. So I spend a lot of money on books. I buy probably one or two books a week. Um, but I'm actually, I'm doing, we're doing some building work on our house at the moment. So that probably pales in comparison to my orders <laughs> of books. Um, I'm buying lots of paint and 
furniture and things like that. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to, to share? Or if you want to, you know, make a call to, you know, a few companies, anything else you can share or recommend with anyone listening to this episode? Yeah, well, look, I, I would be remiss not to mention one of our portfolio companies, which is called Ticker, which yes. is addressing the, the point that you made earlier about wanting to invest in things that make the world a better place. So you can you can invest your ISA in, in that. So definitely check that one out. And then, you know, I think more generally, please talk to your friends about investing, about money, about how much you earn, about how much they earn, about how to negotiate salaries, because I think there's just not enough of that happening. And it can be a really fun conversation. I run a little investment club with my sisters and we, you know, pick companies to invest in and, and they're both medics so they don't really come from finance but they really enjoy it and i think it's something that more people if they knew about would get a lot out of yeah and the best way to bridge the gender pay gap gender wealth gap gender you know investing gaps and uh, mm. and all these gaps that we hate jack thank you so much we can find you at uh, adaventures.com we can find you at diversity.vc and check warner on twitter And any good pitches, company recommendation, can they send it to me, email you? <laughs> yeah, they can, they can actually just upload it on our website. So that's the, the best way. And um, yeah, please do. If you think that your business could be a fit for us, we'd love to meet you or contact Emily as well, because <laughs> she can get you even on the fast track to us um, through the Scouting Network. So um, yeah, really looking forward to hearing from you. And um, thank you so much for having me today. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Wallet. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. And if you did, please do share with a friend or on social media. It also takes two minutes to leave a review or rating on Apple Podcast. And this does really help. Thank you and chat to you next week.